Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Everybody, welcome back to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests who pick movies for us to watch, and then we watch them from our perspective as ministers, as theologians, as people who just love movies. Then we gather around for conversation. And this week, our guest, Catherine Reckless, has asked us to go watch Double Indemnity, and so we've done it. And in our first segment of the show, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask her what this movie has to do with life and ministry and theology and in the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Double Indemnity for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be May 20th, Pentecost Sunday. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share just another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, we want to introduce our special guest for today's show. Catherine Reckless is a professor of Protestant theology at Fordham University and the chief media critic at the Christian Century. And her on-media column just won the award of excellence from the Associated Church Press. Congratulations, Catherine, and we are so happy to finally have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. So, Adam, Catherine, the summer movie season is breaking forth upon us. And but we also know that you all have so many options out there for talking about Infinity Jurassic War, Revenge of the Han Solo. So we thought we'd go back into the vault instead and dig out a Hollywood classic that still has more than a few things to say to us in 2018. Billy Wilder's classic 1944 Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is one of the movies that defined what film noir was. Fred McMurray plays Walter Neff, an insurance salesman who falls for Mrs. Dietrichson, a married woman played by Barbara Stanwyck, and they enter into a scheme to take out a life insurance policy on her unloved husband and then kill him off. Neff thinks he can plot the perfect insurance scheme because he knows the game better than anyone, but of course this is film noir and it all goes terribly wrong. This movie is jointly written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler, who have this famously tempestuous relationship, and yet the dialogue here just crackles. And for my money, if this movie exists only so that the claims adjuster, Barton Keyes, played by Edward G. Robinson, if this movie exists only so that Robinson can give these killer monologues, that's, that's all the reason I need. But Catherine, you of course have your own reasons for bringing this one around. You kick us off. How do you relate to Double Indemnity in 2018, and how can it help us think about theology and the church and the world? Um, so, oh, I could talk about this movie um, all day long. So it is the best way to start my morning to think about Double Indemnity with both of you. I, I'm a huge noir fan. Um, I, I think I've written about this actually in one of my columns once, that, that every spring, something about the spring weather and the beautiful blossoms coming and the warm breezes, and it makes me want to curl up with Raymond Chandler and just get lost in the dark recesses of human nature um, with the noir writers of the 30s and 40s. And this is probably my favorite film adaptation of any noir novel. Um, and as you already said, right, it, some of what I love about it, just to say some of what I love about the movie in general, it's part of what I love is just its um, filming technique and its visual style. And um, it was for me when I first saw this movie, the first time I ever really understood what film could be as a visual, as a visual style, not just a telling of stories or a narrative style, but the use of light, which, and darkness, especially, which is so pronounced and really, which gives noir its name, it's, it's bleakness of human character, but, but also just the way it uses darkness, actual darkness on the screen. And there are some scenes, maybe we can talk about them later, but just some amazing scenes, um, 
in the film, just visual, almost like a visual still or a painting that I, I mean, I get chills every time I see this movie again. Um, but I also love the story, the dialogue, the characters that are created in this. Um, from I love James Kane, who's the author of the novella that this movie is based on. Um, but I probably of all my noirs, Raymond Chandler, noir writers, Raymond Chandler is my favorite. And you can really feel his presence um, at work in this movie, the way he changes many aspects of the novella, Kane's novella, um, and makes them sort of his own in the film adaptation. But in both of their works, right, there is just this sense um, that there is a bleak hole at the center of modern life. And there is, I think, in noir, a kind of Calvinist impulse or insistence right, on a kind of depravity in everyone that is universal and that might be sort of beyond time and place. But noir really as a genre is so tied to those decades, those interwar decades in the 20th century and then even into the post-World War II decades. And I think that is what I love about it. Right? I love that there is a sense that it's not just... Um, you know, a sort of human depravity writ large, but there are particular conditions of modern life, in particular promises maybe of American life, in particular American modern life of capitalism and entertainment, and really even a sort of blanket, unexamined Protestant morality that passes itself off as sort of simple middle-class decorum, right? And that at all of that, at the center of all of that is um, a dark black hole. Um, and I think maybe my favorite part of the way this movie plays with that and sets that up is the, is, is the choice to make um, Barton Keyes, who you already referenced, with these amazing monologues, but the Barton Keyes character, really to make him the moral center of the film and the choice to have him played by Edward G. Robinson, um, who was one of the most prominent Jewish actors working in Hollywood at the time. And that was a uh, sort of a well-known part of his life and his persona as an actor. And I think there is something so bold in in this classic noir moment right there in the early 40s to make the moral center of a movie, this recognizably Jewish character, just at the moment when um, American culture is beginning to reckon with its long-standing largely Protestantly influenced anti-Semitism. So to me, a lot of the themes that still resonate beyond its classic nature as a visual document and its incredible writing, it are these questions about complicity and self-examination um, and um, complicity in a particular kind of American culture. In, in addition to that, Catherine, what I found so interesting in, in hearing you tell us what you love about the movie and then think about how, how Neff is portrayed. Um, there's nothing um, in the early part of the story when he begins to tell the story about how he met um, the, the Philip uh, Dietrichson character um, that gives you any indication that he, that he has this sort of moral black hole um, until he sees like this ankle bracelet or like, like there is this moment of temptation that unlocks something in him. Like, like he can paper over the the depravity within him, but at some point the temptation is just too much for him. Like he's a he's supposed to be a good man, but um, it, it seems almost out of nowhere that he he is tempted or his his black hole is unveiled. Um, I, I was really intrigued by how quickly he turns. Mm -hmm. Right. Like she's able to turn him really quickly, but you get the sense that it doesn't take much, and I think. Wilder is making a point about like about how easy it is for us to convince ourselves that we're good yes. when it doesn't take much to expose how we're not. Yeah, no, I think um, it, no, I think that's exactly uh, that is one of I think Kane's particular features in his fiction. Right? His other really famous famous book, The Postman Always Rings Twice is about this sort of migrant worker who passes through and meets a bored housewife and they decide to off her husband and try to run away with each other and also get rich off of his actually relatively modest estate. Um, but there's a, there's a sense, especially in Kane's fiction, maybe more than in even Chandler or someone like Dashiell Hammett, that um, the line between boredom and moral depravity is very thin. And that in fact, it's a kind of, it's, it's almost just the, the slipover that happens when you are 
a little bit bored. And I think there's actually a real commentary about um, a culture that has grown a sort of fat or rich on a kind of consumerism and a sort of ease of entertainment that I think Kane is diagnosing that that feeds into this this moral laxity. Um, and then you see that difference in someone like a Barton Keyes in the way the film version plays him, right? That he's he's actually quite high strung. He's sort of morally high strung and you get a sense there's almost a moral athleticism. Right? He has to keep this up be, um, with a kind of energy and pacing that the other characters don't have. They really move slowly and languorously and um, Walter Neff, right, is sort of always a little slouchy and real casual, right, with his hands in his pockets, like he's always jangling his keys, um, which later becomes a nervous, you know, a way to hide his nervousness. But at the beginning, we see as just this easygoing, easygoing guy. I love the way that you identify Edward G. Robinson as this kind of surprising moral center in the movie. And I also think it's surprising because he's notorious by this point for playing gangster bad guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, is you've came to fame in by playing Little Caesar, and so like, mm-hmm. and the shadow of that hangs over this, where like, part of what this movie unearths is 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 a is a place where the the moral center is so foggy that even Edward G. Robinson could play it, um, who is this guy who is you know just absolutely notorious for his his on screen villainy, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I also wonder. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me is, was to watch the way the movie tries to signify the kind of moral state of of Neff and of Dietrichson at the beginning of the movie, where she is, as as a 1944 audience, is immediately meant to recognize kind of the the, the dangerous loose cannon because of the the anklet, because she's not you know necessarily fully clothed when we first meet her. She she immediately screams femme fatale and she immediately screams moral danger whereas she reads his apartment really interestingly where um when she comes over there and he is living a life totally on his own he he doesn't even know his neighbors and she sees that as this this amazing thing right where you it's totally uncomplicated you're not enmeshed in all of these complicated relationships and i wonder in 2018 whether we would read those as such as such inverted signifiers where we would see her in some ways as the as as trapped into this relationship with a husband who is not particularly attentive and doesn't treat her well and you know we would we want something of her empowerment which of course then plays out in really damaging ways. And we also, I think, would see that kind of single man living in the apartment by himself with no friends as, as also it's like a kind of potentially dangerous thing. It was interesting to me to watch how those signifiers had changed over, over 70, 80 years. Oh, no, I'm so glad you brought that up because I one of the things I was struck rewatching it again, um, and I've and I I've, I've thought this before, is that we just don't get inside Phyllis's mind at all, and that how much she really is an object of Walter's fascination. And I think I think you're right that she's being presented to us as this dangerous character, and she has this backstory, which is a real moral turning point, right? That we learn she has a she has a dark and sordid past, right? Um, that it's probably through murder or a sort of assisted murder that she's she's even in the situation that she's in um, now. But that also we only get that through other characters' tellings about yeah, her. Right. And that she's shown to us always in these bits and pieces, right? That shot of her ankle, which I think does signal so much, right? This is something in this turning point. It um right in the film it's the moment where all of this buried darkness in Neff comes comes sort of crashing to the surface or floating up to the surface um but it's also we she um we never get to hear her side of any story it's always projected through Walter's telling um and his recounting of this memory and i know there's a you know there's a theory speculation one of the strangest changes is that they change her name in the book right and the book her she has a different name it's not Dietrichson and film buffs and sort of um, 
nerds have speculated that Wilder changes his name as a reference to Marilyn Dietrich, who is who is maybe the other most famous actress of that age and was really known to be a, the kind of fantasy actor, sort of Barbara Stanwyck was the girl next door and this sort of leading lady romantic comedy figure. Um, then Dietrich was this sort of alluring, mysterious um, fantasy woman. And that there's a play on that, right? And, and Barbara Stanwyck is actually wearing a blonde wig, which is a reference probably to Marilyn Dietrich. And this sense that she's being set up as a kind of fantasy um, in Walter's own mind and that he is and, and using her as a kind of excuse to tap into what, in fact, he confesses in the movie. And one of my favorite parts remembering is he says, the truth is, I have long contemplated whether or not I could get away with murder. You know, I've been planning a murder in my mind for years and maybe, right, maybe she's just the excuse, right, the, the sort of fantasy object to unleash this part of himself, which has been brewing under the surface for a long time. And I think I, that that we never get to hear whether or not, or we never get proof that what she has said is actually true, right? So she's a, she's a, a totally unreliable witness, at least in Walter's telling. Because um, there is, she says that she's in a in a trapped in a in an abusive relationship. Um, we see o we see her husband only briefly, and he seems a little distant, but no more distant than any other of the male characters in the 1940s. Um, and then we get this sense that she's like doing something um, with uh, with Nico, this this um, sort of which enrages Walter Neff. Meanwhile, he's been. Um, he's been trying to, uh, he's been walking out with, uh, uh, what's her name? Joy, right? Joy is the daughter. Lola, Lola. Lola excuse me. Mm -hmm. So, so Lola, he's been out with Lola and, and in a sort of un, like quite chaste, um, relationship, which is a strange moment in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but he can only hear, on uh, from, uh, from Dietrichson that, that she is, uh, that she is trying to manipulate Nico in some particular way. Meanwhile, he can't envision that she likewise maybe is trying to sort of settle him down, right? So that when when they start to diverge, you know, like when uh, when when Neff and Dietrichson start to diverge, he can only see the worst impulse in her. In part because he can he's feeling like the deep agony of his own grief, right? Mm -hmm. Um. This is why I think it's really interesting that he confesses all of this at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Like he feels some deep need to confess all of the crime. Um, and yet he can't see in her anything but femme fatale. But we never like, but she she remain she remains ethereal. Like we we don't actually know what she's doing and why she's done it. Um, she seems to know that he's going to come and kill her. And yet she at the very end of the movie still can't bring herself to shoot him. So she never totally adds up mm -hmm. in the narrative of that Walter is telling. Um, and we're left by the end, at least I am trying to understand her is and her villainy. She is no doubt sleazy because both of them are sleazy, but is she the villain that she's supposed to be? Is she like the prototypical femme fatale or is she something a little bit more complicated? Yes, I think, I mean, I think that that is where um, also you're really hitting at the way noir has, has been, I think, in almost all its major manifestations about masculinity. So the, the classic noir character is this hard-boiled male sort of masculine, usually a detective, right? In this case, there's some, it's a little less, a little, in this case, it does not fit that stereotype or pattern quite as carefully. Um, there's something crossed between Barton Key's figure and the Walter Neff character, but that, that there's um, all of this sort of buried and uh, reflected anxieties about masculinity and about how men are, um, where they're supposed to have their authority, where it comes from, um, what it means to um, exert that in a sort of changing economy and changing society. And I think the way that these female characters, um, Lola and Phyllis, operate as these poles for Walter 
I mean, I think some of that is just the 1940 sensibility. And I think we have, we, we do read it differently now in 2018, but I think we can even in 2018 sort of look back and see those not as fixed, real reflections on these actual women or on gender, but on Walter's own positioning himself um, according to his own sort of made up ideas about women, right? There's the femme fatale who he's now going to re-narrate as leading him astray, right? As this dangerous force that he really even needs to kill in order to protect Lola, who then becomes this incredibly innocent, right? This, as you say, sort of incredibly chaste relationship, almost a fatherish relationship, but to protect her innocence from Phyllis was how he begins to narrate his need to, to, um, exert, you know, to enact this other murder, which of course is ridiculous because this idea that he, he's going to give himself a moral sort of a kind of moral free pass in killing Phyllis all for the name of protecting himself, but really for protecting Lola. Right. And the, and the moment at the end where he, where he convinces Nico to not go in the door so that he won't get framed is, um, is such a complicated little film moment. And I, and I love it because on the one hand, it seems like, oh, there is some sort of redeeming quality within Walter. And yet, I can't help but hear him trying to convince Keyes that he is at least a little good. And, and, and that's where it begins to, like the confession portion of this, the, the bookends of the, of, the, of the movie become really important because the audience for this confession is this person who he he deeply respects and actually counts as friend and maybe the last person whose opinion he actually cares about. And it, and, and I mean and there is a role of confessor built into that Keys character. I mean he identifies himself. He has that monologue in the middle where he talks about the insurance manager as a surgeon, doctor, a bloodhound, cop, judge, jury and father confessor, uh, which is set in the middle of a f- film whose that is structured around uh, Neff leaving this this confession not for a, not for the police but for before his friend the insurance manager and I I guess I, I wonder I mean to of course some, to some degree the confession is a is a narrative function it's a storytelling device but I also wonder to what extent uh, is is it potentially good for the soul of Walter Neff or is it just is is it something we should just uh, wash away. Yeah, I think, you know, that was also one of the things that was different about the movie versus the book was to use this confession device. And I think um, there, I think we have, I, I think there is something very profound, right? If there's any even vaguely redeeming relationship in the film, it is the friendship between Neff and Keys um, more than any other relationship. And I think there... Um, yeah, I think there's so much going on and it's hard to know for sure what to make of that. Um, I would say what strikes me about using the confession device to frame it, besides it just being a good story device and it's suspenseful um, and as Wilder loves that device, sort of having having the dead man sort of tell you what happened, even when you know he's already dead or right. going to die. Yeah. Um, this is Sunset Boulevard, right? That's just yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Right? So that's, it's a good device and it works and it's suspenseful um, and it draws you in. But I think it... I think that there, you're right. I think that Walter is trying to, um, he's trying to defend himself in some way, trying to offer some account of what happened. I do think it's interesting. I'm not sure that he would have right, let Zakati off at the house had he not been shot. I think that's a spur moment. If he had managed to kill Phyllis and leave, I think he would have gone through with his plan of trying to frame Nino and get away with, um, both of the murders. Um, and I think, and, and, and see how far he could ride that out. I think it was a moment of thinking he's probably done for, or he's got to change plans. And then I think that the choice of the confession, there's a little bit of a sticking it to keys, right? You're not as smart as you thought you were. Um, you couldn't really figure this out. I'm going to tell you what it is, right? And there's some of that, that, and some of it is a desire to paint himself in as, understandable a light as possible, which is also why I think we have to be a little suspicious of the way he's narrating Phyllis. He's trying to yes, right. make himself as come off as good as he can. So um, I want to talk about uh, just there's there's the allure of the conspiracy in this movie, right? That 
um, that the conspiracy is always out there trying to tempt us, which is, and the allure of the conspiracy is that ultimately we we believe that we're in control. Um, so the the middle portion of this movie is the plot to kill the husband and then um, going through with it. Um, and they build this sort of elaborate plan on a train to fool the insurance adjuster so that they can... Um, so that they can receive this hundred thousand dollars because of the double indemnity clause, um, and I was I was really interested that um, that throughout this temptation, the you know to your point earlier, Catherine, that there is this sort of moral black hole. Um, considering the the the, the type of um, existential dread that comes from such a hole, there is this idea that we can like fill it by trying to control the world around the whole. So I, I'm I'm so fascinated by the ways in which they convince each other that they are in control uh, and that the world is ordered. And if they just think it through and do it well, then they can get, a, they can get anything they want. Um, but I think one of the points of the movie is that people aren't really in control. We are, we are controlled by all of these passions that are like in some ways um, uh, unfulfilled within us but also that the world is out of our control. There's that beautiful moment where they're trying to start the car after mm-hmm. um, after throwing the body on the train tracks and and it, the car not starting is threatening to destroy the whole plan because there's always a moment that you can't account for, whether it's a car, whether it's the witness at the back of the train. Um, and I'm there's another movie... Um, do you remember, so Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket, mm-hmm. has that great moment at the very end where Dignan, who's a, a fool, has plotted a heist of um, of this place. And he comes in um, and he's like, they always go to lunch at 12 o'clock. And so they show up to like safe crack, a, 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 you know, a safe with money in it. And everyone's there. And he's like, what are you all doing here? You're supposed to be at lunch. And. And he says, you you always go to lunch at 12 o'clock. And they go, no, not always. And then he screams at them, yes, always. <laughs> and it's this amazing moment of being like, oh, yes. Like, we, we convince ourselves that we are in control, that we have done all of the research, that we have the perfect plan. But these plans are inevitably going to go astray. Yes, I think I agree with everything about that. I think that's so much a part of what this movie is is playing with. And but can we just talk for a minute about the fact that that um, that this is all built around insurance? Right. Mm-hmm. I think that is so important in the in the way this movie is also a kind of commentary or criticism of a sort of stage of American cultural and economic life. Right. That one of the devices that has been invented in the modern world to try to render a sense of control. One of the, in fact, the now major institutions of, um, of that sense of control is insurance, which is, a, of course, a very recent contemporary invention in the world and is a very bizarre one, right? If you reflect on it for even a moment or two, right, it's a very strange um, instrument of ordering our, our common life and our sense of um, contingency and our ability to p- prepare for the unexpected. And I think it yeah. is. And secure ourselves. It's an it's agent of security. Yeah. Um, and that it is, in fact, this insurance investor who is all these things. I mean, there's a humor in that, in one of that yeah. monologue. The idea that it's the insurance adjuster who is our, or who plays all of these roles. And yet, right, there's, there is um, a kind of bitter and humor and humorful truth to that statement. And that key is also, right, he is, he succeeds. He's the only person, he's in some ways the perfect bureaucrat, right? He knows every actuary table, right? He has read all of the fine print, right? He knows this sort of bizarre, modern bureaucratic institution inside and out and is the best at his job. But what makes him the best is actually this um, sort of inner moral center that cannot be accounted for by the actuary tables. And I think that is that is really a key part of what this this movie is saying about kind of modern American life and culture um, is by setting it in an insurance agency in the most the most sort of bureaucratic cubicle soul sucking nine to five right sort of image of our uh, image of our 
a sort of modern cage of modernity in, in Max Weber's terms. Um, and yet, right, to make this pivotal moral character the insurance adjuster. And there's not a police officer in the whole movie. No, you know. Yeah, exactly. that's interesting. And he doesn't figure it out and he doesn't save anybody. You know, that's the interesting thing. If, if Keyes is a hero, he doesn't do any of the things that heroes usually do, except that he has he has a sort of moral compass that works, which in noir Los Angeles is rare. Which, exactly. Which, which is important. Um, okay, so before we move on to the lectionary passage, uh, it is it. Los Angeles is the most interesting theological city. Oh, Adam, you keep saying so, this, and it keeps not being true. But fine, go so ahead. It is. It is, and it's and it's the best place to set an uh, a detective story. Um, so my question for both of you is, uh, what what are what is on your list of important LA detective stories? Um, I mean, um, <laughs> the Long Goodbye, which is maybe the very best noir in my opinion. Right, it's my absolute favorite. Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye. Um, any of so, Dashiell yeah, Hammett's so stories? Do you do you do you like the Altman version with Elliot Gould? So you know, I I like the the movie versions all fine, but I have not. That's why I didn't pick it, right? So, so I don't think any movie version can really has really yet satisfied my love of that book. Where I like the movie version of Double Indemnity as as much or more than I like the novella version. Though I like I like the novella version a lot, and there's some there's some very interesting things that happen in that written version that don't happen in the, in the movie, in the movie version. But I, I, I do not have a long goodbye film adaptation that I, that I think can really hold a candle to the, to the novel. Matt. I think some of the modern ones are kind of interesting to me. Um, LA confidential is, uh, not the it's best, great. but a really good movie. Um, Guy Pierce is awesome in that movie. Yeah, I mean, also as a, as a Michael Mann fanboy, I mean, Collateral, I think is is one of the ones that sails under the radar a little bit here. Um, but I I mentioned those because I trust you all to to know the the film noir canon, um, the classical canon a little better. I I would add Mulholland Drive just because it's such a strange Lynchian vision of neo of neo noir, um, and I still don't quite understand what it is, but um, I think it's sort of like. It un, it seems to understand the Hollywood Hills as well as any of these. Definitely. Uh, Chinatown should be on there. We've talked about Chinatown yeah. in the past. I think the thing that it, that's interesting to me about a, a lot of these is the ways in which like natural resources are always a part of this, even in Double Indemnity. That you know he's he's losing money in oil because oil is part of the Los Angeles basin, as is water, as is like all of these other different resources as are, as is people within Hollywood. So, um, but I, I just, I think we should, we could do like, we could do six or seven weeks on just LA noirs in general. Oh, and, and the Walter Mosley stuff. I think devil in a blue dress is a really good movie mm -hmm. of the last 25 years. Um, that says that is, that is adding race to this mix in a way that's really smart and thoughtful. So before we move on, I want to stop and say how grateful we are for our partnership with the Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the great work they are doing. Uh, they're doing some really interesting work lately in the wake of the death of James Cone. Uh, the Century has got a number of articles that honor and take seriously his lasting legacy and his influence on the U.S. church. Really good stuff. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to The Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Also, Av and I are taking the show on the road. We've said this last week. We want to remind you we will be the keynote leaders at the Mo Ranch Young Adult Retreat this coming fall. This is the first time we have done this, but we're working on some cool stuff for the retreat, including, and not surprisingly, watching movies. That's going to be a head scratcher, Adam. So head over to Mo <laughs> Ranch's we website. Do? Head over to Mo Ranch's website and sign up if you want to come hang out in the Texas Hill Country with us for a couple of days this fall. Also, uh, I wrote a book. It's now available for pre-order. It will be out end of June, early July. It's called The Holy No, Worship as a Subversive Act. And uh, I'm proud of it. So you should read it if you are interested in worship or theology or strange stories about worship within the church over its history. So you can find it on Amazon or, um, or at your local bookstores. But go buy the book. All right, Adam, Catherine, let's move on to preaching. 
This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at the lectionary passages for May 20th, which is Pentecost Sunday. It's a good week. We have, of course, the Acts 2 narrative of the Pentecost morning. But year B also gives us Ezekiel's prophecy in the Valley of Dry Bones, a section of Psalm 104, and some section of Paul's epistle to the Romans about hope of the church and the help of the Spirit. Catherine, as you look at these passages, does anything stand out as particularly interesting or inspiring given the themes of double indemnity? Um, so, yes, I think I I, um, I wish I had realized that this co- coincided with Pentecost. I feel like that's a really weighty, a weighty pairing to make, um, double indemnity with the Pentecost. But for me, I was thinking about um, the, so, so many of those readings, right, the Acts reading, the Ezekiel reading are, I mean, they're strange. They're unusual. They're hard to get your head around what's actually happening. Um, but they have in them, right, this sense of a of a power in the spirit to make things new, to take what is dead and bring them to life, or to make something actually new or unexpected in a situation where it really doesn't. It's not meant to be. I'm thinking, especially of the Acts passage. Um, and I was. I was thinking about several things. Right? One, um, how the way we think about Pentecost now as a season of renewal or um, the uh, hope for the church or um, hope in the church, how different that is right? than the way we might imagine trying to understand those original stories or those um, kind of canonical stories. Because one of the things we, we face now in our moment right, is that we live in a world um, where the sort the sort of ruins of the world around us and its brokenness are partly made by, by the church and by Christian complicity within our larger culture, and that is of course a different story than the making of the church in its in this sort of originary moment of the Spirit's work in that upper room, um, or or even the way that passage is drawing on the kind of prophetic tradition that we see echoed in the Ezekiel. Um, passage as well. And so I think I was thinking about how noir, right, in I think we all feel the need in this moment, maybe of our culture and our our common life together, a sort of desperate need for hope, a desperate need for a sense of renewal, but that we also maybe need noir um, in the way that noir is, right, it's a dark, it's a bleak genre, but it's really a genre about self-examination and complicity. Um, Maybe versus the the other genres that are also dark and bleak, um, like horror or apocalypse, which are having in some ways much bigger revival moments. And I get that. I get why like horror movies and sort of indie horror and apocalyptic genres are raging right now because there's a sense of forces that are bigger than bigger than any of us, impinging on our world, destroying it. Senses sort of evil that comes at us and threatens everything about the structures of our life and our own getting caught up in those and trying to figure out what we would do in the face of them. But maybe we actually need a little more noir um, as a balance to some of that, because noir is not about forces outside of us or some mysterious force of evil, or um, it's about the, the bleakness and evil within us, right? Or, or about complicity within evil. It's a very introspective genre or a very psychological genre. And so I was thinking about right, it as a, as a sort of balance um, to, to how we understand our need for renewal um, and where we imagine, where, what place we imagine we're in, in hoping for, um, hoping for the spirit to do a new work. So that's, that's sort of what in trying, it's probably like a hard, hard pairing to make, but that's what I was starting to mull over when I was thinking through the lectionary with this film. I think I think that's really good, and uh, and uh, let me let me drill down on it a little bit because there is this line in the um, in the Joel prophecy that Peter says uh, in the Acts passage, where um, where one of the parts of that prophecy is the sun shall be turned to darkness, and that jumped out at me as I was thinking about this movie precisely because uh, of, of course the the film is such a literally dark movie i mean it's it's noir is a genre associated with a quality of lighting all the all the outside shots are done at night all the inside shots are shrouded with shadows uh double indemnity is like a canonical example of this style of filmmaking in some ways it's probably like an effect of wartime cinematography you can do a lot of artistic effects on the cheap this way when you don't have a lot of resources 
but it's also, as we've talked about, kind of associated with this 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 quality of moral confusion. Uh, like it 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 has people in um, ambiguous moral places, uh, which and, and and there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of groundbreaking moral claim in in the Hollywood trajectory, working within the Hayes production code at the time. That's that's happening here. Uh, it's interesting because in scripture, uh, that darkness, especially in this passage, is not really a sign of moral confusion. It is like kind of as you were talking about. It has this apocalyptic quality to it. It's this sign of the coming of God and of judgment, and it's uh, you know the apocalyptic language doesn't sound like fun or comfortable, but it uh, but you wouldn't associate that that sun shall be turned to darkness language with some kind of moral ambiguity. God is coming precisely to restore a sense of the good, and and darkness is like a sign of that restoration, and so I, I wonder. You know, it has me wondering uh, how much of the aesthetics of film noir have kind of captured our imagination about what darkness is supposed to mean or signify. But in, in the light of your comments, it also has me wondering the extent to which that apocalyptic sense of darkness is also supposed to push us into a place of kind of internal reflection and wondering and, and maybe confession. I mean that's that's my sense. I when I when I watch these these noirs, it's the moral confusion is I think an antidote to some of the Romanchian visions of the world, where there are these just these inalienable forces of darkness and light. And and on the one hand, um, a movie like Double Indemnity, and or also like The Third Man, which we watched a few months back, um, it, there there is there are these moments of shadow, but that shadow isn't all encompassing. It isn't. Um, it isn't total total bleakness. It isn't total darkness, but neither is it total light. And that um, that the the lighting, especially the diegetic lighting in this particular movie, is is designed to show all of the the moral choices that have gotten you to a position, and the the ways in which you've sort of Neff and and Phyllis have have slowly made choices to to move into a, a more shadowy place. But also how they are trying to extricate themselves. I mean, I think um, the way that by the end of the movie, Neff is totally lit, and um, there is no sort of ambiguity. Uh, there is no shadow cast over him. Like, but his whole his visage is is seen clearly. I, I, it's really I, I love where you're going with both of this because I think the the noir ver, the the noir genre uh, is. Uh, is hard to is it's hard to square with these two moments that seem so huge. It seems like the heavens are sort of opening up, and at the same time, in these movies, uh, can we count on the heavens to always open up? Like, is there something else that we need to have inside of us? Um, this is where I would look at other scriptures that say, like, you know. It's it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That there is like when when Keys talks about the little man inside of him, that there that he that he personifies this like second brain or this second second person inside of him who that's telling him something. Um, that he seems to be suggesting that there is some sort of moral principled light that's that can be had in the center of us um, if we guard it. And and the question for me is, whenever I read that Ezekiel passage, is always like, Ezekiel is going to prophesy to these dry bones, but these are all dead. And not a few chapters later and in all of the prophecy before this, like these are the people who God was like, fine, to hell with you. You know, like you take take what take your medicine. This is this is the consequence of your moral behavior. Um, and yet, then there at the end of the Ezekiel passage, God is saying, and I will save you. So there is this sort of mercy and justice that's at the heart of this particular passage that I think is also at the heart of the noir genre. I mean, I think maybe one thing I would just come back to an earlier point um, about the choice to have Edward Robinson in that character to make um, Barton Keyes. Um, a kind of Jewish character in this moment. And I think I haven't done enough reading to know to what degree um, 
that would have been even vaguely possible, you know, vaguely in Wilder's mind, who was himself, right, a German emigre, and um, and Robinson was a Romanian Jewish emigre. Um, but I think that it's, um, right, I think that there is a message there if we if we can sort of look back to the to the moment of, of the, the 1940s, right, the late 1930s and 1940s. And I think one of the things noir is doing religion, right, as an actual force or Christianity very rarely is referenced in, in noir fiction. And yet right, it's, it's sort of undeniable that the culture that's being criticized is a sort of heavily Christianized, largely Protestant, sort of blanket American culture right, in which a kind of relationship between um, a Protestant establishment passes as a kind of middle class uh, morality or decorum. And that is largely what's being criticized in this genre. It is that vision of life, which is actually, and you're bringing up the Hayes Code is so important, right? That it's it's even in our entertainment, we have to maintain that vision, right? So the Hayes Code does not want us to see um, moral uh ambiguity or conflict that isn't punished on the screen, right? That's one of the things the Hayes Code is concerned about is that that there's a vision of the world that needs to be upheld. Um, and I think it, there is something really powerful in having this character who is sort of adjacent to that, um, a little bit of it, of a prickle to it, um, right at a moment when things like anti-Semitism are being examined in American culture. And I think it could raise for us questions about where voices of prophetic renewal come from, right? Where we are listening for them, um, and our own sense of our of challenging our own sense of already being the the voice of prophetic renewal. Um, I, that's what I mean it by it being a kind of introspective genre, right? It's a genre that turns a light back to that thin line about our own complicities and our own um, sort of more complicatedness. And so that might be something to think about with these passages too. Well, I, I think that about wraps up our time. But Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for bringing this movie to us. Uh, it's been a, a great conversation. Thank you so much. It's best best way to start the day. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Me too. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get one other little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, hit me. What's your postlude for the week? All right. So last episode, Matt, you talked about Mike Birbiglia's new show, The New Ones, which you went and saw and um, encouraged other people to see. So I was inspired by you to go and see what it was about. And um, and I found that he had a he was doing a podcast called The Old Ones. Did you listen to this at all? Uh, uh I've heard about it, but I haven't plugged into it yet. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to do another another week of Mike Birbiglia, but um, but I think it's appropriate because. I'm, I'm totally format. fine if this episode just ends up being a Mike Probiglia appreciation podcast. <laughs> yeah. So he's he's got this podcast, and it was in a run up to his uh, to the new ones and and touring with it. He he invited people onto his show to talk about his old his old albums, like all of the previous shows that he's done, and. And those people had conversations with him where they sort of just asked questions about the show. They had conversations around the decisions that were in the show. And then more recently, he um, uh, he's taken this this idea of comedians talking about their old work and invited uh, Hassan Minaj, who's um, whose special is The Homecoming King on right. Netflix. Yeah. It's really it's really, really good. good. Yeah. Um, and they talk and he talks with him about that particular show. And it was just it was really a, these are fascinating conversations about the decisions that they make in coming up with this long form storytelling that they do. And I, I found it really helpful for thinking about preaching. And I'm I'm I really want to steal this idea because I think there's value in returning to some old sermons. And I would love to have conversations with preachers about old sermons that they loved and listening to them and asking questions about them and just um, and returning to some of this work that we've done, uh, because I think it's I think it's really helpful um, both for the preacher and for the person having the conversation. And in the format that I was thinking of is there there are so many preaching groups that do like lectionary pre preaching and they gather together and they share 
Um, they they share exegesis on their preaching. Um, I wonder what it would like what it would be like if if in some of those groups there was an opportunity for someone to sort of have a conversation where they share a sermon and then you have a an appreciative conversation about what decisions were made and and how you made those decisions. I wonder if that would be a valuable exercise for people. I would find it really interesting, depending on the preacher, I suppose. But um, but I, I think it would be really cool to hear from others about their old ones, their old sermons, and the ones that they still are in love with and they still care deeply about. So that's the, that's the Old Ones, which is a podcast series by Mike Birbiglia, our, our, our newest appreciation here at Technicolor <laughs> Jesus. Saint of the podcast. Yeah, our emerging patron saint. I've got another podcast recommendation. It's called uh, The Habitat from Gimlet Media. Uh, oh, I've been listening. You've been listening to that? Awesome. So uh, deep in the wilderness of a dormant Hawaiian volcano, uh, NASA has built an identical mock-up version of what the first Martian habitat might look like which is this tiny metal dome smaller than a tennis court with everything you need for a crew of astronauts to survive for a year. And then NASA actually sent a crew of astronauts to live in this mock-up habitat for a year to fully replicate the social and practical experience of living on Mars. So everything that you would have on Mars, they have, minus, of course, the adapted gravity but they have some internet, but only for the constraints of time delay and bandwidth that you would have if you were actually on Mars. They also have a nice tape recorder that they can use to record audio that gets sent to this podcast reporter who sends them questions by email. Otherwise, they only have each other. And so this is a story about people living together in the most claustrophobic sort of human community, and it's just full of great bits of humanity. So I highly recommend this for preachers who are interested in how pervasively people act like people, no matter where they are. It's, it's remarkable. It's yeah. not long. All the episodes are out. Plus, every episode ends with a different amazing cover of David Bowie's Space Oddity, and I love all of them. Uh, this podcast could just be a series of Space Oddity covers, and I would still be in. So The Habitat is wherever, <laughs> wherever you find podcasts. Uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. I'm only like two or three episodes in, but um, I've I've been fascinated by by the ways in which human community is formed so almost naturally. Yeah. All right. That about wraps it up for this episode. If you'd like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong or how we got it all right. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, to, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and also to Garrett Moskowski. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Allergy Season. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>